Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be picking up where we left off at the halfway point of Jack London's masterpiece novel, Martin Eden. So if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, I urge you to go back and check them out where I talk about the, the first half of Martin Eden. So in this first half of Martin Eden, we meet a young sailor who decides to become a writer due to his growing fascination with middle-class life, and in particular with a woman named Ruth Morse. He struggles to make a go of it, learning how brutal the editorial process can be to unestablished writers. He writes poems, adventure stories, non-fictional accounts of his traveler, travels, and as he become, begins to become more interested in philosophy, he writes short philosophical tracts on individuals, creativity, and beauty. And in the meantime, he becomes a student of the then quite famous and influential philosopher Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer uh, helps him develop his ideas of individualism, and he becomes enamored with social Darwinism. But he continues to struggle to find an audience for his works and struggles to get published. In this state, he turns to manual labor, only to find that labor pushes him to drink and to intellectual idleness. He walks away from this work and commits to writing hack pieces to make ends meet. He also decides to stay in Oakland instead of going out to sea, which was his original plan, and he asks for Ruth's hand in marriage. This he's granted, despite the misgivings of Ruth's family. Yet poverty is never far from him, and when we pick up in the halfway point of the novel, he still has yet to establish himself as a writer, and he's becoming um, increasingly frustrated with his career, and at the, mean, at the same time he's trying to start a family and get married, yet he has no money or assets or even a real career to, to do that. So in the midpoint of the novel, Martin Eden is in, in trouble. So that's how chapter 15 opens. It's a, it's a chapter about poverty and about how his fiancée cannot know what poverty is or its burdens. And this is a important point because throughout the whole middle part of the novel, what we're reading about is this disconnect, both between Martin Eden and the world he wants to enter and the world he left behind in the middle class, and also this growing disconnect and this inability of Ruth and Martin Eden to really communicate about what the future lies for them. Ruth just wants him to get a job, a professional job. Eden wants to continue and working at becoming a writer. And as chapter 15 opens, we actually talk about his landlord, Maria Silvia. He says, Maria Silvia was poor and all the ways of poverty were clear to her. Poverty to Ruth was a word signifying a not nice condition of existence. That was her total knowledge on the subject. She knew Martin was poor, and his condition she associated in her mind with the boyhood of Abraham Lincoln, of Mr. Butler, and the other men who had become successes. Also, while aware that poverty was anything but delectable, she had a comfortable middle-class feeling that poverty was salutary, that it was, no, that it was a sharp spur that urged on to success all men who were not degraded or hopeless drudges. So that her knowledge that Martin was so poor that he had pawned his watch or overcoat didn't disturb her. She even considered it a hopeful side of the situation, believing that sooner or later it would arouse him and compel him to abandon his writing. End quote. Um, a really powerful opening of the chapter there, and there's a lot to say about this. Uh, the middle class often either see the poor as people that need to be aided with or, you know, sources of their charity. 
and their help or their moral guidance more insidiously, like the YMCA, of course, saying you should pray if you want our charity. You have to go to church before you get your meal. But here it's it's even a worse kind of idea of the poor, that the poor are honorable and somehow have a beauty and, 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 and you know, poverty is somehow a motivation. For Jack London, poverty is something very horrible and brutal. And he talks about this a lot in even the Iron Heel and in the People of the Abyss. That is, it's not something honor. There's nothing honorable about poverty. Poverty is a stain on the whole society and it destroys the individual. So it's a, you know, there's a lot of attacks throughout this novel on how the middle class see the poor. Um, and we see that Martin Eden begins to bond with his poor landlady, Maria Silvia, over cheap wine. She is most fascinated by his travels to the South Pacific and wants to hear his stories. And like his other potential girlfriend, Lizzie Connolly, she sees something in Martin Eden and appreciates it, even though there's a language gap between the two of them. But just as Eden is about to despair and give up on writing, he gets notice that one of his pieces is going to be published. The editorial machine has broken down in his fantasy. If you go back to my previous episode, I talk about how he, he, he had his image of the editorial process as a machine, like a, you know, just a mindless machine that took his articles, took his stories, put them in a new envelope and sent them back. He imagines this machine has broken down. What he did is he sold a piece to Transcontinental Monthly for $5. Now, he believed that the publication of these works would give him like $50, $40, or even $100. But instead, he's promised $5, not in advance, but after it's published. And this is because his work was unsolicited. And they said, we don't normally accept unsolicited works, or at least don't pay them at the going rate. He wasn't even given a check. There's only this promise of $5 when the work was published. So although he got a work published, it didn't help his situation at all. Eden assumed that the going rate for writing was two cents a word. And once again, Eden learns that his, his beliefs about what the life of writers is didn't, wasn't true for especially young, unestablished writers. He was getting instead one cent for every 10 words. His dreams of paying off his debts with one big sale fade away. The $5, only promised, not in hand, could do little but pay off a small portion of his debts, even if he had it. His frustrations come off in a dream that night. So chapter 16, he's about to give up writing after falling sick. He's basically kind of intellectually and almost physically broken by this frustration he's facing. And he's about ready to give up writing again. Um, and he gets noticed that another one of his works is sold, this time for $40 to a magazine called The White Mouse. This, I think this was uh, one of his children's, you know, his adolescence adventure stories that he wrote. This sale will give him the space to survive into the future, but only for a while, and it gives a boost to his career. Although overjoyed at this, Ruth, although Eden's overjoyed about this, Ruth is indifferent. Only frustrated that the sale will give fuel to Eden's desire to become a full-time writer. The gap between them is growing greater and greater due to these different dreams the two bring to their relationship. Ruth still holds all the hope that Eden will someday just you know, put on a suit and tie and, and get a job in a business environment and become a professional. She only scolds him some more for his failure to get a job, but she also scolds him for his smoking and other bad habits. And he agree, actually agrees to change his habits. So we see that he's willing to make some changes to meet Ruth partway, but he's, what he's not going to do is give up his dream of becoming a writer. 
At the end of this chapter, class again becomes a major theme as we learn that Maria Silvia adores Martin Eden. We are reminded that there's a place for Martin Eden in the working class still, although he doesn't want really, he does seem to want to turn his back from, from the people in the working class who do see something in, in Martin Eden. And here's what, here's what uh, London says about this. He says, Maria, with worshipful eyes that nonetheless were keen to note the texture of Ruth's garments and the cut of them, a cut unknown that produced an effect mysteriously beautiful saw her to her carriage. The crowd of disappointed urchins stared till the carriage disappeared from view, then transferred their state stare to Maria, who had abruptly become the most important person on the street. But it was one of her progeny that blasted Maria's reputation by announcing that the grand visitors had been for her lodger. After that, Maria dropped back into her old obscurity, and Martin began to notice the respectful manner in which he was regarded by the small fry of the neighborhood. As for Maria, Martin rose in his estimation, her estimation a full hundred percent, and had the Portuguese grocer witnessed the afternoon carriage call, he would have allowed Martin an additional $3.85 worth of credit. End quote. So class is really deeply entrenched in this, all these relationships. Like the perception of class, Eden's perceived to be moving up, and this gives him some respect among the working class. But that same moving up in the world is going to create that gap that's going to make it impossible for Eden to ever really go back to that world. Chapter 17. Uh, stale sales start to trickle in. He, you know, these works he's been sending out start to come back with money, with checks, with uh, publication announcements. Sometimes they're only for a few dollars, but Eden starts to get payback for all his efforts he put into sending his work off to editors. In his mind, he starts to break up the world into the gods and clods. Dividing in, divid, dividing in part by their reading habits and desires. And this is partially his social Darwinism, partially his strong individualism. But we get this speech he kind of gets. And this it's, it's an internal monologue, but he starts to divide up the world into gods and claws. I think he actually even writes this down in an essay at one point. And Eden's sort of writing for both audiences, both the gods who he thinks will be attracted to his philosophy and his more academic, not, I don't want to say academic, but it's more artsy writing, and then the kind of the more vulgar writing he writes for the popular audience. London writes, he has discovered in the course of his reading two schools of fiction. One treated of man as a god, ignoring his earthly origins. The other treated of man as a clod, ignoring his heaven-sent dreams and divine possibilities. Both the god and the clod schools erred in Martin's estimation and erred through two great singleness of sight and purpose. There was a compromise that approximated the truth, though it flattered not the school of gods, while it challenged the brute savages of the school of clods. It was his story, Adventure, which had, dra which had dragged with Ruth, that Martin believed had achieved this ideal of the true in his fiction. And it was in an essay, God and Clod, that he expressed his view on the whole general subject. But Adventure, all that he had deemed his best work, still went begging among the editors. So the problem that Eden's facing is he thinks he's found this a story that can match both. Basically, an, a, an adventure story that has artistic merit, but he can't find an audience for it because it doesn't get. It's not. He's like almost being typecast, perhaps. He doesn't or assumed he's going to do one thing, right? If you think of like a writer like Stephen King who tried to get into more artistic and uh, art, but wasn't always accepted by his readers when he tried to experiment outside of horror. That was a theme early in his career. 
So this is a, a problem. And in the same way he's kind of out of class in his social life, in his relationships, his work is kind of out of class too. His relationship with Ruth starts to become more troubled. Eden wants to discuss his writing and ideas, but Ruth has an objection to talking shop. There's This really frustrates Eden too. Somehow I think this is, goes back to class because you know, Eden, working class, you know, he knows that work and money, these are things that are talked about around the dinner table. These are practical concerns for working class people. But for Ruth, that's something that's not proper to talk about such things in a relationship that should be hidden, right? It shouldn't be brought into the home. This might even go back to almost a separate spheres idea that the home is the domain of, of women, of morality, of virtue, of, of raising children, while outside there, the world of politics, the world of of capitalism are they're not fit for the home. They're a bit dirty. But this is an important moment because it proves to Eden that the middle class really lacks the intellectual spirit he's striving for. If anything, the middle class is as bad as the working class. They are crass consumers of ideas, but lack any autonomy of thought. In this way, it's a moment that Eden begins to break beyond the class that he strove to enter for so long. Um, and he just, it's more and more evidence that, that really there's not much in his relationship with Ruth that's going to, to save him or give him any hope for um, a, a relationship that can really be based on his intellectual needs and desires and, and his creativity. Chapter 18, Eden's career begins to take a step back as the checks stop coming in, and he's forced to back into hack work, and he begins to write derivative formulaic stories, which seem to sell a little bit better. Desperate for funds, he starts to write the Transcontinental for the $5 owed him. He never got it, even though they published his article, but his letters are just ignored. What he calls machine-made stories, these formulaic pieces, are the only thing that keeps his head above water. So we have another reference to the machine process. The first one was the editorial process itself is kind of a massive machine. Here, Eden takes on a machine style writing where he just kind of has these formulas and he just kind of changes characters or, or changes settings a little bit, but basically they're the same story again and again. Um, they're what people want to read, like the sitcom, if we think of modern, more modern culture. Chapter 19. Uh, the center of this chapter is a feud between Martin Eden and Mr. Morse over politics. Mr. Morse, Ruth's father. Morse uh, wants Eden to become a regular Republican. So in the same way that, that Ruth wants Eden just to become a regular businessman, uh, Morse assumes that Eden will just become a regular Republican. But Eden has this contempt for the middle class, uh, which has been brewing and it comes all violently in this chapter against his, who he hopes to be his future father-in-law. So it's, it's quite damaging to his relationship with the Morse family. And we get a lot of windows into Eden's mind about what he thinks about the, this middle class. Okay, he starts thinking about Ruth here and he says he dearly loves her. But as it was clear to him that he had been handicapped by his early environment, so now he perceived that she was similarly handicapped. She had not a chance to expand. The books on her father's shelves, the paintings on the walls, the music on the piano, all were just so much meritocratic uh, display. To real literature, real painting, real music, the Morses and their kind were dead. The bigger and bigger than such things was life in which they were densely, hopefully ignorant. In spite of their Unitarian proclivities and their masculine conservative broad-mindedness, 
they were two generations behind interpretive science. Their mental processes were medieval. While their thinking on the ultimate data of existence in the universe struck him as the same metaphysical methods that was as young as the youngest race, as old as the caveman and older, the same that moved to the first Pleistocene ape man to fear the dark. So that's what he thinks about this class that he wants to enter. Not very um, much, as it turns out. Now, while on some level Eden knows that his own morality was a product of his upbringing, he thinks he has broken free of that while both the working class and the middle class are kind of stuck in, in the place. So the gods and clods almost, right? Everyone, like they're stuck in their upbringing, and this is going to limit their, their creativity. And he lectures this quite openly to two members of the middle class that he's spending a little bit more time with as he's getting kind of more ensconced in the Morse family and their relations and, and their hopes and dreams for, for Martin Eden and their future son-in-law. Chapter 20. This is another feud between Martin and Ruth. They've been quarreling for about 100 pages by this point, but it's just another one in a series. This time, it's over the willingness to compromise in his writing. Ruth thinks that Eden, if he's going to be a writer, should sacrifice his style and themes for a chance to just get paid. He compares it to the concessions he made when he was writing hack work. He said, you know, you, you used to write this hack work. You didn't think it was art and you didn't think it was valuable. So why not now when your career has a chance to break out, just, just write what the people want. Just write for the masses. You know, and he has been sort of doing this, but he, he starts to get frustrated with this and he wants to do something greater. Eden uh, does divide in his mind his hack work, his formulaic work, his form his machine pieces from his real literary voice. Ruth just says, throw away your kind of real literary voice and just, just commit comp completely to the hack work. But me, our Eden thinks that one can be compromised, but the other is more sacred. Martin displays his contempt for editors, whom he, all, he assumes are all failed writers. But she makes one more final attempt to get him to agree to a career change, asking that he become a journalist. Their relationship is near their breaking point, in fact. Eden asks her straight up if she, what it is she loves about him, if not his writing. Now, this is an important point because Eden starts to realize he still has love for Ruth, but he doesn't really know what she sees in him. And she's so critical of everything he does and all his career choices, his background, his ideas, his values, what's left there for her to love. And it's almost like she's loving an idea and Eden is realizing that she's just loved some idea of who he could be. And if you go back to the early part of the novels, you know that she's always been imposing some kind of ideal picture, snapshot of what Martin Eden should be. And this is a, explains a lot of her efforts to correct him and uh, transform his you know, life in little ways, even trying to correct his language and how he talks. So chapter 21. After a tense meeting with his sister, which is also about money, Martin Eden runs into a man, Russ Brissenden. It's a chance meeting, but Brissenden is going to be an important figure for much of the rest of the novel. Brissenden is an older writer. Like Eden, he's a financial failure. Now, Eden will be successful by the end of the novel, but Brisson never really achieved any success as a writer. Um, in, a, in a sense, Russ Brissenden is the writer who's able to stick to his artistic voice, something that Eden very much wants to do. Brissenden is a socialist, while Eden declares himself at various points in the novel to be an, an out, outright reactionary. 
But despite their political differences, they're able to become good friends and they share their ideas over, over drink. Quote, they talk. They talked about many things and now Brissenden and now Martin took turn in ordering scotch and soda. Martin, who was equally strong-headed, marveled at the other's capacity for liquor and he ever and anon broke off to marvel at the other's conversation. He was not long in assuming that Brissenden knew everything and deciding that he was the second intellectual man he'd ever met. But he had noted that Brissenden was what Professor had what Professor Caldwell lacked, namely fire, that flashing insight and perception, the flaming uncontrolled genius. Living language flowed from him. His thin lips, like the dyes of machines, stamped out phrases that stung and cut. Or again, pursing curiously about the incohate sounds they articulated, the thin lips shaped soft and velvety things, mellow phrases of glow and glory, of haunting beauty, reverberant of the mystery and inscrutableness of life. And yet again, the thin lips were like a bugle, from which rang the crash and tumult of cosmic strife. Phrases that sounded clear as silver. They were luminous at starry spaces. They epitomized the final words of science, and yet said something more. The poet's words. The transcendental truth. Actually, the sentence goes on. It's a long sentence there. Um, but this just gives you a taste of how enamored Martin Eden becomes with Brissenden. And despite their political differences in, in ideology, they're really, this is the one of the first really the first person Eden meets that he sees as kind of an intellectual equal and someone he can actually get something from and, and benefit from being a friend with. The first person he's not like isolated with from. Brissenden will provide another path out for Eden. We've seen other characters do this. I think Lizzie, Lizzie Connolly, another potential girlfriend, uh, his co-worker at the, laundrom at the laundry was another person who kind of provided a way out for Eden. And Brissenden will be the other one out. Then that will be socialism and kind of intellectual honesty and, and, and I guess, uh, yeah, intellectual honesty is what I want to say. But also part of that is socialism. He does try to convert Eden to socialism before the end of the novel. Chapter 22. So Brissenden arrives to Eden's to deliver his advice to him. And he says, leave Oakland, go to the sea. And write about experiences in true beauty. Experience beauty. Experience the world and write about that. Stop trying to conform to what the middle class audiences want. Start trying to stop writing hack work. Go out to the sea, sort of like Melville, and, and come back writing about those experiences. And that's his advice. And it's this advice that basically means he's going to have to give up everything that is in Oakland. And the most important thing he says you need to turn your back on is Ruth. And he has some really harsh words for Ruth. And it's something we know as readers. We've been noticing this all along about Ruth. But maybe Eden's been blinkered by his love for her that he doesn't see this. And he accuses the middle class of basically only able to prattle off little moralities that have been prattled into them. They have no creativity. They're, a, they're just... A spokesperson for banal moralities and ethics that have come from Christianity or from society. There's really, and Eden needs to get away from that if he wants to have any intellectual freedom. Chapter 23. Um, desperate for funds, Eden marches to the offices of the Transcontinental to demand his five dollars. Um, and the fact, that's how, how bad he is uh, at this point in the novel. He has been not well off for a while, but that he has to demand $5. I guess if you were to convert it to present day money, we're talking about like $100. So, he, you know, he's that close to 
like not having food. He demands his $5. And it's a pretty humorous scene, actually. The workers in the office are all eager to praise Eden. They're, you know, they, they're, they're so happy to see him and, and they shake his hand. But they all hesitate to pay him when he asks for this money. Eden's finally forced to threaten violence before they pass the hat and collect $5, which, you know, he included like a tram ticket that he takes and takes, you know, takes as a credit for a few cents. He does the same thing at another office that also owed him money. So he, he's basically kind of almost become like a gangster threatening to break legs to get his, his money from these editors of these small time magazines. Now, this, in a way, is a return to his adolescence in his days of fighting. Remember the earlier chapter where he dreams of his fight with this bully named Cheeseface. Fighting the editors is something he... So when he thinks about his past, his fight with Cheeseface, he realizes to, he finally had to beat him. After years of being beaten up by Cheeseface, he finally had to beat him. And he thinks, edit, you know, the editors are the same way. Eventually, they'll have to take me seriously. But we assume that was a metaphorical thing, that... He just hard work at writing, sending stuff out, and eventually I'll get the payback. The editors will respect me and, and honor my work. No, in fact, he actually literally fight the editor. It becomes literally true in this chapter. So that's kind of a fun uh, point. And it's it's a moment, in, it's one of a couple moments in the book where Eden's past as a boxer and his experience fighting uh, becomes an important plot point. Um, of course, Jack London himself was this kind of guy, right? He got, was a boxer at various times in life, and he even wrote some stories about boxing. All right, chapter 24. Martin Eden shows Ruth a new story he wrote about the South Pacific, and he also gets a letter from, e letter from editors discussing libelous notes they've been getting from someone claiming that Eden's stories are plagiarized. He quickly figures out, based on the the writing in the letter is that it's his brother-in-law. Now, his editors sort of say, we don't really take anonymous letters seriously, but we wanted you to know that these um, accusations were being made. But he figures out that this is his brother-in-law, Bernard Higginbotham, that wrote the letters. This uh, seals his isolation from his family. But at the same time, he's also increasingly isolated from Maria Silvia, his landlady, when he tells her, a better way to do her housework. And she's offended by this and grows more distant from Sylvia. Chapter 25. Brissenden shows Eden his work ephemera. This is going to, to prove to be his final work, his final man manuscript. And he doesn't want it published. It impresses Eden greatly. At the same time, Eden impresses Brissenden with his philosophical work, The Shame of the Sun. Brissenden rightfully predicts that the shame of the sun will be the work that will make Eden famous. But Brissenden makes it clear that he does not want ephemera, his own final piece, published. And that is only for him. And he wanted to share it with Eden, who he respects, but he doesn't want it to be published. Chapter 26. Brissenden takes Eden to a philosophical meeting. Now, without getting into the details of this talk, it's a lot of back and forth philosophy being discussed. It's clear to Eden that he is in a room full of equals. People, and there are people who respect him, and he can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with these people who are trained philosophers. Eden himself is inspired and is very appreciative of Brissenden for showing him people that he can engage with, right? Again, it's Brissenden becomes this gateway into a class of people who are not only his intellectual equals, but share his fire, share his 
his spirit can appreciate him, who can discuss things with in an honest manner. This is very in contrast with the middle class, who he increasingly holds in disdain and, and doesn't respect anymore, including um, Ruth, who's still at this point in the novel his, his fiance. Well, that does it for the third quarter of Martin Eden by Jack London. While his career and his relationships are in deep trouble, he has found a friend who is his intellectual equal and someone who can provide a path for Eden's escape. Whether he'll take it or not is something we'll have to wait to see. Eden at this point in the story is trapped in many ways. He's trapped between his classes. He's trapped between beauty and his art and the hack work that he has to perform to survive. He's trapped between the desires of those around him and his own desires to be a writer. Only Brissenden seems to acknowledge who Eden really is and what he really needs. Now, while Eden's career will prove to be a success in the final parts of the novel, he is going to be frustrated in his effort to find happiness. Now, how all this plays out will be the topic of our final episode on Martin Eden. But for, and for that, you're going to have to wait a few days. So once again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And... You know, if you have any comments or questions, you can send them to me at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll get back to you very quickly with that. Um, but thanks again for listening and see you next time.